And as you're being seated, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26 as we continue our journey through the final days and hours of the life of Jesus on earth leading up to his crucifixion this morning. We're looking at Matthew 26 verses 45 through 56. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. You think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Like many of you, I imagine, I grew up on Sunday mor- Saturday morning cartoons, including Popeye the Sailor Man. Popeye, if you don't know, he was just a normal sailor man. But when he faced a tough situation, he had something he could do. He would break open a can of spinach and eat the spinach. And by the way, in case anybody was idealistic about this. The whole concept of Popeye was funded by the American Agricultural Society and the U.S. Army to promote the consumption of spinach. Um, True story. He would break open a can of spinach and eat it and instantly have super strength to deal with whatever problem he was facing. If only spinach really worked that way. Some of us might actually eat it. But better yet, what if there were an emotional or psychological, or spiritual equivalent. Something we could do that would give us instant fortitude, instant courage, instant strength, instant composure, and confidence to face the difficult seasons of life. We, we all go looking for something like that. We all try to find something that will make us feel better, something to make us feel more prepared, something to make us feel stronger, whether it's a more secure retirement account or a healthier or prettier body or something that convinces us that we can face whatever's coming in the days ahead. And yet it doesn't work, at least not for long. So how does God call us to find strength to face the future, especially a future that will include things that we can't possibly anticipate or prepare for. To answer that, we look at the example of Jesus who faced a greater crisis than we ever will. It would be wise for us to ask, when that crisis hit, 
where did Jesus find his strength? We look for strength in the wrong places, and the things we look to will inevitably fail us. But Jesus shows us that true strength is found in trusting our sovereign God. One of the hardest things about the arrest of Jesus is not the arrest itself, but it's what happened to his friends. Because in what happens there, we see that strength doesn't come from other people. This, uh, this story that we're looking at today follows after the one we looked at last week uh, when Jesus, entering into the Garden of Gethsemane, is sorrowful and troubled to the point of death, he says. He's at his lowest moment and he calls his friends to come join him and to share his burden with him, just be there with him while he struggles. And his closest friends are there with him and they hear him grieving and crying out and struggling. And they fall asleep. Not once, not twice, but three times as Jesus is pouring out his heart and struggling, those that he's asked to be there with him, those that are the closest to him, sleep. And so our story begins here today with verse 45 as he comes back to the disciples the third time now that they've fallen asleep and says to them, sleep and take your rest later on. But more than that, it's not just that his friends couldn't hang in there, but he goes on in verses 45 and 46 to tell them, look, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. You see, he's not just going to be caught and arrested, but more emotionally difficult, he's being betrayed. Betrayed by someone close to him. Verses 47-49 through 49 describe how while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, Judas came with a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders, who we know from previous verses has they've been plotting all along to arrest Jesus. And the Judah, Judas the betrayer had given them a signal, a sign. Because, you know, you don't have Facebook or Instagram or any of these things. Like, Jesus' picture isn't all around the place where everybody knows him when they see him. So how, is, how are these, these, this mob, how is this posse, this crowd, going to recognize which person they're supposed to capture and arrest? Judas gives them a sign. He says, the one that I kiss is the man, sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. You know, that kiss, which was a normal, customary greeting between friends, should have been a sign of, of the closeness that they had. A signal of friendship from a close companion and a follower. And it's instead the signal that's used to betray and to sell Jesus out. And even though at this point, Peter, at least, we know from other Gospels, Peter's the one who pulls out a sword, makes this great show of loyalty. Uh, in the end, verse 56, all the disciples left him and fled. So everyone close to Jesus at this moment when he needs strength, they've either turned on him to betray him or they've completely abandoned him and left. And Jesus' hope was never that his disciples would band together and defend him. His hope, his strength was never in, in the loyalty and the presence and the ability of his followers. Because strength doesn't come from other people. And Jesus doesn't entrust the success of his mission and the future of his kingdom. He doesn't entrust that to the faithfulness of his followers and neither should we. You know, we will sing at times the hymn, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. You know, we sing that. And we would be quick to confess that if we are honest with ourselves. How often do we look to something else for that foundation? How often do we look to great leaders? 
How often do we look to influential figures? How often do we look to authors and artists and others who have had an influence on us and affected us and built us up in the faith and we look to them and we look to the people around us in the specific community that we're in? And how often have we confused the true foundation of the church? Instead of being in Jesus Christ our Lord, we look to the people of the church or the leaders of the church. Now maybe you don't think that you've done that. You don't look to others for strength. But ask yourself how you react when those that you've trusted fail you. When you see that famous uh, pastor or author or speaker that, that influenced you so much and, and did so much to build you up in your walk with the Lord. Or that, that friend, that close person that you trusted. That one whose ministry helped you. What happens when they fail? What happens to you when they sin? What happens when they walk away from the faith? Do you feel weakened by their failure? Do you feel temporarily lost when others lose their way? If so, then maybe you have looked to others for strength that they were never meant to give you. Yes, I, I don't want to deny that God uses people to bless us and to help us and to shape us, and to lead us. That is true and right, and that's in His Word. People moved and led and strengthened by the Spirit of God. But we must never forget that it is God who is leading us through them. They are a conduit. They are the means of God's strength to us, not the source of that strength. And yet we live in a culture and a world where it's a very human tendency to need to lean on others. I thought of Shakespeare and Henry V. That famous monologue as they're about to go into battle, outnumbered, outmatched, weakened. And he speaks to those around him and he says, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For if anybody would bleed with me this day, then he is indeed my brother. He's trying to motivate and rally the troops by appealing to what? To the, to the friendship, the kinship, the brotherhood that they have. Or to bring it into... More contemporary times, the same principle is at work in the, one of the most popular TV series of our day, uh, the show Friends, which follows these you know, 20-something uh, friends in New York City and as they go through the craziness of their life together. And, uh, and the, the idea what's so appealing about that show is, is really explained in the theme song. So no one told you life was going to be this way. Your job's a joke. You're broke. Your love life's DOA. Seems like you're always stuck in second gear. Yes, it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or even your year. But I'll be there for you when the rain starts to pour. I'll be there for you like I've been there before. I'll be there for you because you're there for me too. What was so appealing about that show for so many people was the, uh, the idea that it set forth that if we just have the right people around us, if we have the right group of friends to support us and sustain us and strengthen us, then we can deal with anything. A bad job, bad health, bad love life, whatever it is, we find our strength in our friends. And that's very idealistic. And the reason that, that nobody ever sees that happening in real life, the way it happens in TV or in plays or movies, is because we were never meant we were never meant to find our strength in other people. After Peter's great confession earlier in Scripture, when he recognized through the enlightening of the Spirit 
that Jesus was the Christ and he confessed truly that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, you're right. And on this rock, I will build my church. But he says, you have to, we have to be careful to notice what he says. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. It's not Peter's strength of confession. It's not Peter's insight or loyalty that gets it the job done. What builds the church is Jesus building His church. We can put too much hope in other people. Even when Peter gets it right, Jesus has to say, I'm still the one that's going to do the work. We can put a lot of hope in other people. Religious leaders, friends, family, people who bless us, who God uses to bless us. But we can, we can mix up the source of the blessing and the means of the blessing. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is addressing controversy and conflict in the church in Corinth. And he says, when one of you says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? I mean, that's just, that's just a human way of seeing things, to, a, to find your identity and your strength and your purpose in who you align with, in which person you are loyal to. He goes on and says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? We're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Whatever, whatever influence we've had over you, whatever success, it was God working through us and giving us that success, strengthening you through us, God doing it. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So yes, we, we will and still accept and appreciate the blessings that God sends to us through others. We let Him use people to strengthen us but we always recognize that it's God that is doing the strengthening. This not only keeps us grounded and prevents us from disappointment, from putting too much hope in others, but it also makes us more graceful. Note in verse 50 that Jesus still calls Judas friend. He knows why Judas is there. He has no illusions about where Judas's heart is. And you can easily picture Jesus well within His rights when Judas comes forward to betray Him and tries to kiss Him. Jesus pushing Him away and saying, what are you doing? We all know why you're here. You have sold your heart to the evil one. But no. He says, friend, do what you came to do. When we remember that we should not trust people the way we trust God, it makes us quicker to forgive people who hurt us and fail us. When we put too much trust in another, their failures and their betrayals can devastate us. But when we receive the blessing as from God, not from man, we can more quickly forgive and show grace. Jesus, facing crisis, facing a difficult path, did not look to the people around Him, not to Judas, not to Peter, not to the twelve. He didn't look to them for His strength. Their courage fails. People are not a solid foundation. Strength does not come from other people. Most of us have learned that lesson. We've learned that people disappoint us. We know better than to consciously put our hope in others, but we then look to something else. Something perhaps more promising. We look to, to institutions. We look to earthly powers. And Jesus here shows us that strength, just as it doesn't come from other people, it also doesn't come from earthly powers. He shows us that in His time of need, Jesus doesn't count 
on power, at least not in any power that the world would offer. When they try to arrest him, Peter thinks it's time to fight. In verses 50 and 51, they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, which we know from another gospel to be Peter, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Interesting aim. I don't know how he got the, just, just the ear. The disciples were outnumbered outmatched, barely armed, but Peter, knowing his scripture, knowing God's pattern in the Old Testament of working with weak, helpless, small Israel to conquer far greater enemies, Peter surely thought, now's the time. We will rise up, we will in faith take great action, and God will respond and deliver us. But that is not, in this case, how the kingdom of heaven is going to be won. The time of military action is past, and the conquest of God's people now is different. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, though we're human and live in the world, we're not waging war according to the flesh. We're not, we're not fighting the way the world fights. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh of the world, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The world has its weapons. The world has its ways of showing power. Not just in the case with literal weapons and warfare, but also ways of exercising power and influence. Ways of controlling people, hurting people, damaging people. Ways of using power to get your way. Whether it's media power, Economic power, social influence, and social pressure. The world uses these things to exercise its power and to build its kingdom. And the church is called to reject the world's ways and methods. We don't fight the way the world fights. Jesus wants us to fight for Him, yes. But He wants us to fight in a different way than how the world fights. We don't try to enforce Obedience to God through political or economic or social pressure, though many have done so in the past and would argue for such today. Our weapon that He gives us is the Word of God. And our enemy is not unbelievers. Those who, who even are antagonistic to the gospel in the church are not the enemies of the church. They're the captives that we seek to liberate. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the dark forces of this world. And so Jesus tells Peter, put your sword away. Verse 52, He says to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He's warning Peter. He's warning Peter that fighting in the wrong way only leads to destruction, not to victory. If you use the world's weapons, you will be destroyed by the world's weapons. Now the reason for that restraint is in verse 53. Jesus goes on to say, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you think that I could not appeal to my Father in heaven and He would at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? The legion in the Roman army was thousands, five or 6,000 soldiers. 12 legions is a massively large number point is not the exact number. The point is, if it comes down to a question of force 
or power, this little posse with their clubs and sticks and torches, cannot stop God. If Jesus wanted it to stop, it would stop. God doesn't need our earthly power and force. Jesus allows Himself to be arrested and abused and executed, not because He's too weak to stop it, but because He's powerful and it doesn't affect Him. At least not in the way that they think it does. It's like the old Timex commercials. They take a licking and keep on ticking. And they would, they would subject these watches to, to beatings and to pressure and to water and all these other things. And you think, how could they do that? How could they do that to that, that timepiece? And the reason is they know it can take it. It's not going to do what you think it's going to do. And Jesus likewise goes into that situation and He doesn't need to stop it. He doesn't need to call for help. Not because He's too weak to stop it, but because He's so powerful. He can endure it because He's so powerful. You remember when they were at the Last Supper and Jesus, we saw a few weeks ago, predicted Judas' betrayal and yet did nothing to stop it. Why? Because He had no intention of stopping it. He didn't need to stop it. The victory of the kingdom of God does not rest on force or might or manipulation. It doesn't need earthly power to succeed. And likewise, the church today, how are we tempted to fight the world's battles on the world's terms with the world's weapons instead of trusting the wisdom of God that would send us on a different path? How are we rushing forward to fight the battles that Jesus hasn't called us to? How might we be misunderstanding the way that Jesus builds His kingdom? Peter and the rest of the disciples and many, many others in Jesus' day had an idea of what it must look like if Jesus intends to be king. It had to follow a certain way. had to look a certain way. It had to be done according to the way that the world pursues power and secures power. They believed He had to rise up and crush the enemies that opposed Him. And instead, Jesus was lifted up on the cross and forgave those that oppressed and opposed Him. They believed He needed to lead the crowds in a great rebellion. And instead, He chose to be condemned by the crowd that opposed Him. They believed He needed to be strong and threatening. And instead, He chose to be meek and humble and welcoming. Why? Because could He not call down all the heavenly armies if He needed to? It wasn't because He didn't have the power to fight the way the world wants to fight. No, He knew. Jesus knew that far above every show of strength and power here on earth, far above every king and congress and president, above every government and every army, above even every spiritual power, every demonic force, every mental health issue, every addiction, far above all rulers and authority, God is in control. Anybody like that idea? Okay, thank you. Because that excites me. That it doesn't matter what plan or power the world presents. God is above it. And therefore, He doesn't need us to gather together the sticks and stones of the world's way of fighting. When Pilate 
is judging Jesus in John 19. He says, do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? He's trying to impress Jesus with the power he has over him. And he wants Jesus to recognize and, and kowtow to that power. And Jesus in the next verse says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Whatever power we see at work in the world, not only is God stronger, but He put that power there in the first place. We don't need to fear it. We don't need to fight the way they fight. We don't need to imitate or emulate it. Could not our Heavenly Father send His legions of angels if He needed to? He doesn't need to play the world's game of power because God is in control. Our culture has its own expectations of how power works and what success must look like, but Jesus doesn't count on those things. He tells us to set aside our idols of power before they consume and destroy us. If you play by the world's game, you'll be destroyed by the world's game. If you lift up a sword, it will destroy you. And how often, too often, the church, the church here on earth has played the world's game and has gotten destroyed by it. And to enable us to put away our swords, to give us the courage to do so, He reminds us that true power, ultimate power, is still in God's hands. We don't need to worry or be afraid. And so strength doesn't come from other people and it doesn't come from earthly powers. What Jesus shows us here is that strength comes from following God's plan. Jesus faces a difficult journey, a painful future, and he is strengthened in knowing that the path he walks is God's path. He is following God's plan. Verse 56, he says, But all this has taken place so that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Now he's saying that in answer to his own question in verse 55. He asked the, the, the crowd, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. He's saying, look, why didn't you come arrest me earlier? If I'm such a threat, if I'm such a danger, I've been out here every day teaching in public, you could have come and, and arrested me at any time. Why didn't you do that? And it's a rhetorical question. He knows the answer. He knows their answer and he knows the real answer. Their, their answer is this. If they had arrested him publicly, what would have happened? Matthew 21, 46, although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the crowds believed Jesus was a prophet. They wanted to make Jesus king. What would happen if they'd come in and arrested Jesus in public while he was teaching the crowds? Well, first of all, they would have lost the support of the people. And second of all, they probably would have had a riot on their hands. And so Jesus says, look, you're not the only ones who want to avoid a riot. You don't want a riot because you'll lose your power. But Jesus didn't want to be rescued by the crowds either. Because if the crowds had somehow stopped Jesus from going to the cross, if they had intervened and kept Him from, from going up and being crucified, what would have become of God's plan to send His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins? And so after reminding the disciples that, that God had the power to intervene whenever He wanted, Jesus then wonders in verse 54, but if I'd done that, how would the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? What must be so? Jesus must go to the cross. It must be so. He explains this elsewhere. After His resurrection, 
Before the disciples really understand all that's happened, we see this story where Jesus is uh, walking along and, and encounters two of the disciples walking on the road. And he's like, guys, why so blue? What, you look like you lost your best friend. And they're like, really? Are you the only one who doesn't know what's happened in Jerusalem? And they explain, look, Jesus, we believed he was a mighty man of God and we thought he was going to be the one to save us and to redeem Israel and yet he was executed and put to death. And what's more, it's been three days and now his grave's empty and some of our women are saying that Jesus is alive and we don't know what to make of this. And it's just killing us. And in Luke 24, Jesus replies to them, still concealing his identity, Oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It was necessary. You see, I, when I was little, I... Uh, you know, one of these little kid things where, you know, you imagine what you would do if you had a time machine. You know, what little kid hasn't thought that at some point. And I remember thinking, if I had a time machine, I would go back and I would stop them from crucifying Jesus. Because in my little heart, bless my heart, I thought that the, the crucifixion of Jesus was some great tragedy unspeakable tragedy, but yet God somehow redeemed it and made it better by raising Jesus from the dead. That's how I thought when I was younger. And, and, and honestly, many of us still might think to some degree like that. We don't understand that it was necessary, necessary for our salvation that Jesus go to the cross. It was not a mistake. It was not an inevitable, tragic event that God made good of. It was God's plan all along. Jesus knows the path he is on is the right one, is the one that Scripture spoke of, and all these things are happening so that Scripture might be fulfilled. He says it twice in this moment. He knows the path he's on is the right one, but don't confuse right with easy. Don't confuse right with happy. Don't confuse right with painless. That's, that's, these are the easy mistakes we make. That if we encounter obstacles, if we are unhappy, then we think I must be on the wrong path. But in Matthew 7, Jesus said, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those that find it are few. The way of following God's plan may be hard. Actually, we should expect it to be hard. We should expect it to ask a lot of us. We should expect that it would require us giving up good things. Letting go of things we love and cherish. Right does not mean easy. It doesn't mean happy. It doesn't mean painless. There's a show that I know some of you watch and I'm going to be able to tell who by your reaction when I say, this is the way. Okay, I see it. There's a TV show called The Mandalorian. It's set in the Star Wars universe and it follows a character who's called The Mandalorian who's part of what you'd call like a guild of, of lifetime soldiers. And whenever faced with a confusing situation or a difficult situation or something they don't like, once it is clear that this is what you have to do, this is what's supposed to happen, you say, this is the way. And the response is, this is the way. And it's this fatalistic way of recognizing, I may not like this. I may not understand it. This is not what I planned. But this is the path that I have to walk. This is the way. But our calling is not as grim as that. 
You see, that's a very fatalistic way of viewing it. And yes, we face things that God calls us to, and there's times where it feels like all we can say is, this is the way. I don't understand it. I don't like it, but this is the way. But it's not for the Christian all about stoic resignation. It's not grit your teeth and just bear it and put up with it. No, it wasn't that for Jesus, and it's not that for us. You know, this snapshot we're looking at in the garden of his arrest, it's a painful time. But that's not the whole story. In Hebrews chapter 12, we are urged to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus didn't go into the garden and face his arrest and his crucifixion and simply say, this is the way. Father, if you can take this cup, please, but not my will, but yours be done. There's no joy in this. There is no hope in this. I'm just going off to my destruction. Mine is not to question why. Mine is but to do and die. No, that, that's not what Jesus is facing. He accepted the way of the Father, the path set before Him. He took on the cross, but He was strengthened by the joy set before Him. Not the inevitability of it all, not that He couldn't get away from it. He was strengthened knowing that there was joy on the other end. It wasn't just the plan of the Father, but it was the heart of the Father that gave Him strength when we look at the plan of the Father. Because of who God is, we can trust that whatever His plan calls for from us, it will will lead to a joyful end. Following God's plan gives us true strength because we can be certain of the joy at the end. You know this, I know this, but we have to take a moment and be reminded of what it is we actually know. I'm not saying, I don't want you to hear this, and some of you are thinking this, that the cross of Jesus is a good and perfect example for us of how when we follow God's way, no matter what it leads to, no matter how painful, it it turns out good because Jesus went through the cross and God raised Him from the dead. So God therefore has the power to take us through difficult things and bring us joy. Okay, there is truth in that, but that robs the cross of its power and its beauty because the death and resurrection of Jesus is not just an example of what God can do. It is a promise of what God has already done. A promise to His children that Jesus already took your place in death. And so your assurance of a happy ending is not that God has done it before but that God in Jesus has already taken away your curse. And what He replaces it with is blessing. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. The enemy is overcome in Christ. And Jesus comforts His people with these words in John 16. He says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So where do we find strength? when we face the crises in our life and the uncertain future that we all have in these days, where do we find true and lasting strength? It is not from other people. Though they may bring blessing and strength to us, they are not the source of that blessing. And if we lean on others and and expect that the people in our lives will be enough to carry us through, we will be disappointed. True, True and lasting strength does not come from earthly powers. 
because God does not need them. He is stronger over them, and he tends to work in spite of them. We find true and lasting strength and courage to face our future in following the plan of God, who has already overcome the world through Jesus. Does that free your life from struggle and from pain? Absolutely not. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for he has overcome. So steady on. Find joy in knowing that the God who sees the end from the beginning has set a path before you, a path that leads to joy. And so as we're going to sing, take heart, I have overcome the world. Rejoice, the Lord is King. If He is King, if He is King indeed, then we may rejoice and be strengthened in that. Let us pray that by His Spirit, it would indeed be so. Our gracious Father, Strengthen us by Your presence with us. Open our eyes by Your Spirit to see and to understand and appreciate what You have done in Christ. You have overcome. And so whatever path You call us to walk, whatever Your plan is for us moving forward, we may be confident that You have overcome, that You are King, and that it is not for the inevitability before us, but for the joy set before us that we move forward and find strength. In that, would you give us hope? In that, would you teach our tongues to rejoice? We pray in the name of our Savior, our strength. Amen.